0: We'll mm-hmm. Welcome to the Self-Helpful Podcast, where we break down the classic and cutting-edge wisdom of self-help to discern how to actually make positive change in our lives. I'm Kevin Miller, and in this episode, we're talking about we're going to talk about a lot of things, uh, grace and forgiveness and perseverance, but in a war, real world, and, and to me, a gritty way, and I'm with Josh Peck, actor, comedian, podcaster, social media star who has held lead roles in iconic television shows like Drake and Josh, which I did mention to my kids in they of course knew it. That's uh, on Nickelodeon as well as Grandfathered with John Stamos on Fox. And now Turner and Hooch, which is going on right now on Disney+. Plus. But Josh has a new book out that I don't think Maybe anyone but me is going to say is gritty, but we'll get into that in a second. And the book is titled Happy People Are Annoying. And I'd add that people who write as wittily as he does are also a little bit annoying to me. Uh, but the laughs and the heart just overcompensate for my envy there. And you know, through the recounting of A Difficult Life, Josh showcases some insight that's almost easy to brush over. But we're going to dig in today. And I think it'll help us all just question our perspectives uh, during challenges that help and hurt us. And that's why he's here. And it's his self-awareness that we're going to learn from, uh, whether or not he'll take credit for it or not. You can find Happy People Are Annoying everywhere, which is also kind of annoying. And you can watch him now on Disney and Turner and Hooch and find him on Instagram. He's got 13.3 million people there, a few more than I have, which is also just a little bit annoying. Hey, if you find value from the self-helpful podcast, you can subscribe uh, so you don't miss any episodes and please leave a rating or review, help others find the show and know what value they can receive. You can always find me at KevinMiller.co and next up, Josh Peck. All right. Uh, you know, you may be the first person I grew up in the South and in the church, Josh, and I've never heard anyone remotely refer to Jesus disciples as ride or die homies. So that's the first credit that I, that you get out of me reading the book. That was, that was profound. Thank you for that.
1: Listen, happy to help. And, uh, I, yeah, I, that's probably the most millennial thing I could have said when, uh, <laughs> doing my, my, my light theology in the book.
0: It was significant theology. And now that came out of you talking about Ben Kingsley and his, his really his wisdom for you. When you ask, you know, what do you, what, what should I, what do you got to tell me? And he says, find your apostles, find those people who are going to stand beside you. But you really hit on kind of expound on find those people who will also tell it like it is. Is that fair? Who will really call you to the mat when necessary?
1: I think that's fair. Yeah. You know, working with Sir Ben Kingsley, who was like my, who is my favorite actor and such a hero of mine at that time when I was 21 years old or 20 years old, making a movie called The Wackness, I was looking for some version of a father figure, someone to tell me that everything was going to work out. And selfishly, I was really looking for the secrets to how to be a movie star or maybe even a tenth of, of the actor that he is. So when I asked him for advice in the last night we were together, he said, find your apostles. And I said, Ben, you know, with all due respect, I'm a Jew. And I'm also looking for the, the you know, the secrets to becoming rich and famous. And and that just sounds like a New Testament deep track. Um, but as I learned what apostles were and, and as it was revealed to me over time is that it's to Ben Kingsley's credit, he said, find people who support you that can be there for you in moments of rejoicing and in moments of pain and strife. And if you find yourself in a room of people who don't support you in that way, leave immediately. And, you know, apostles have a very special ability in which to tell you things, even if it might hurt your feeling. No know, feelings, knowing it's what's best for you.
0: Well, and that's significant because, yeah, at first when you say that statement that he said, you could easily hear that to go, oh, just find people, hang out with people who are going to tell you what you want to hear, make you feel good about yourself. And you're not you're not saying that, you're saying, no, that's not the point, but they are for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I think it's, it's that I always say, if you're wondering who an apostle is in your life, think about the last person who told you something that you didn't want to hear. And if you had this, these four reactions right away, which was screw them, I'm the worst, they're probably right, but it's too late. Ah, fine, I'll do it. You know, it's, that's what goes through my mind. And if all, all those four boxes are checked they go, whatever they just said probably was a value. And that person is a value.
0: Yeah. So looking at it now, there was something you said, actually, I think it was in the back, like in the conclusion part of your book and your therapist was really encouraging you to a point and say, no, give yourself credit for what you have done, what you've gone through and how you pulled yourself up by the bootstraps. I'm paraphrasing, but there's a balance there between you, you know, taking, I mean, you did a lot and we're going to talk about some of those things, the things that you did, you had awareness of, uh, whether you knew it or not. And, and Josh did it. And yet over here, you are giving a lot of credit to the people along the way that, as you said, supported and encouraged you and helped you. And where is that balance fall for you of giving yourself credit and also recognizing the, the incredible support and fortune Uh, can we say, or privilege that you did have even amongst what I think people would not look at as a privileged life, at least early on?
1: Absolutely. And yet, you know, I was born into a first world country with a certain level of, even though we we constantly vacillated my mom and I between middle class and low, you know, basically having no money. It it was like my, I, I didn't, I didn't go to bed hungry. You know, and and somehow, my like baseline needs were taken care of. So to your point, you're right, right? Like how much of it is fortune? How much of it is, you know, that that we all win a certain lottery being born under a certain circumstance to an extent. Yeah. And yet, you're right. I, I don't know, I don't I don't think I've quite perfected that yet. I would imagine the people that I trust and look up to would say that taking credit for anything or, or is not really my business. And more so, it's about just an acceptance of, you know, the the realities and my life is good. And that if I spend my time neurotically worried about the other shoe dropping or questioning while I'm here, why I'm here and having debilitating imposter syndrome, it's like all these things inhibit me from being of help to others. And that's like the only real thing that I know for sure is like God or the universe or fate. Like the only reason for me to have a good life is to make me more equipped to help other people. Because if I'm really struggling, I'm just not, I don't have as much time to help others.
0: Yeah. I'm interested in you saying debilitating imposter syndrome. I talk about that frequently because I've kind of, I've just kind of made friends with that. I do have imposter syndrome and I don't think it'll ever go away and I think I'm better at just waving to it and I'll go online like I did today and say, okay, you know, in the last 30 days, half a million people have downloaded this show. So I must have something. And so don't be so nervous, but obviously it can't be debilitating, but I've, I think we often looked at things like that and go, Oh, at some point you're going to get past it, right? That's the overcoming. And, uh, I'll ask you how you feel about it. Cause I've, I've kind of made friends with that. I don't know if it'll ever go away. I don't know why.
1: You're so right. Yeah, I think the volume goes up and down depending on your spiritual maintenance, you know, depending on what's going on in the world. I guess like the the greatest thing you hear about meditation is it's not that you stop feeling things, it's that you become less reactive to it. You become more of an observer of your thoughts and go like, oh, there's that thought, which is probably a pattern thought of like, oh, gosh, something bad happened in my life. That's a preview of more bad to come. Or I didn't get that deal. And so this financial insecurity is going to spin me out. You know, I think it's about being less reactive to those thoughts instead of wishing them away. Because to your point, I don't think they ever go away totally.
0: No, it's good, though. I I, I think to me, it's a big deal because I think, again, we in this in this personal development self-help arena, the thought is that you're going to grow, change, evolve, and you will not have those problems anymore and. I've struggled to see that, that the problem or that issue or that lack or that, you know, errant perspective of of being an imposter when, when you obviously must not be according to the results, but that it's not there, but it doesn't have so much power over Mm -hmm. me. And that was a lot, heck, that's a lot of your story, uh, Josh, or that's what I got out of the story is seeing things, you know, the one you shared, it was the first, Series that you got onto that the guy uh, you know you wanted to be on on the show and he got you on there and sent you up there and like the first six episodes you said you were on the bench literally so you're there you're being paid but they're not putting you in out of their own you know issues and you said something to the effect of instead of being just pissed about being on the bench I'm gonna sit here and use it as a learning tool now you wrote that in the book was that thought did that happen then of uh, i mean you so you took that negative thing you didn't let it have power over you decided but what at that time did you really think that or are you saying now in retrospect that's what i did thank god
1: i think to your point talking about the taking credit of it all going back to that like i i sometimes it can be to my detriment that i just feel like very i always feel at a disadvantage i always feel the need to prove my worth i always feel like when i get into a new Uh, When I start a new job, when I get into a new environment, um, and now at 35, having done the amount of work I've done as an actor, like working, but also doing the real work, which is going to acting class and like learning the craft. I know I'm meant to be there. It's just a matter of, but then you're talking about like milliseconds, right? Like you tend not to lose the Olympic finals by 20 seconds, but, you know, the elite person is, is being you by a second and that second is everything. And so when I get to set now or when I'm walking into these environments, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm supposed to be here, but you know, am I going to be tuned enough to beat out that other person by that second? Is my work going to be in a place where I've really, you know, prepared and, and set myself up to win at the highest level. I think that's sort of like the gradient of it. So yeah, I think I just always, you know, I, I was just working on something and I had to be re-reminded because I have such an easy forgetter in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ego has incredible recuperative powers. But I, I just felt like a total imposter for the first couple of days. And then halfway through, I start getting like more comfortable. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was just necessary. And I didn't necessarily respond. It didn't feel great, but I didn't act out. I didn't overdo it. I didn't like really lean in and get into that people pleasing energy to combat that feeling. I just felt it and said, and then halfway through when all of a sudden things are clicking, I'm like, Oh, right. Like no matter how much you respond, there is a bit of that. Like you got to get in the water. You got to get on the court. You got to like get a little bit of the ring rust away and be reminded like, okay, I know how to do this. I have a muscle memory, but it's hard. It it doesn't always show up.
0: And it, it speaks to me, I guess. Yeah. And you're making me think about it again of not in a spiritual sense, but just of faith. So I, I feel like an imposter. I feel like, like you said as a disadvantage, but you've done this enough to know, have faith and have awareness that I, I am okay. I do belong here. And kind of in that sense, I mean, do you look at that feeling that you tend to come to things with a feeling of disadvantage that in how it motivates you, it is an advantage?
1: Certainly. And I don't know too many people that aren't, you know, it's amazing when you see these people who are really elite at things, how at home they are in doing the basics and doing things you would think that they would, they should be passed by now. And, and I, and it's just like the gritty, not sexy, um, you know, part of the process that you don't want to watch in a movie montage. Like we all want to watch Rocky run up the stairs and beat up the the hanging meat and, you know, do like, you know, and drink the the raw eggs. But if you really watch, uh, you know, uh, a boxer, it's monotonous because I love boxing. And it's like it's three hours of training every day for their whole life while they're while they're fighting. And then it's a month off after a fight and they're getting back in shape. And it would not make a good movie montage, mm-hmm. but that's what they're doing. And I, I think all the people that I look up to, it's very rare where I'll be like, oh, they're a savant. I mean, they have they have a magic about them that, that you can't learn, but they also work the hardest. You know, they're working harder than anyone else in the room in most cases.
0: Well, it's interesting in your profession, do you find, I think we as spectators, could look at the celebrities and think so often that they are all that and they know they're all that and they think they're all that. Do you find in the reality of your profession, more people, you know, some that do have an ego and think they're really all that, or do you find, no, most of them actually do feel a little imposterish, feel like they're at a disadvantage and that's what helps them step up and be who they are.
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, I I think imposter syndrome is like something that should be taught and accepted and it is plagues high achieving individuals. It's like, it's, it's just a part of it. It, It's pretty common. Um, And I would say, I, I think people in my position, if I'm being brutally honest, vacillate between huge swings of gigantic egoism and entitlement and utter swings of feeling like, you know, deep, deep fear that they aren't enough and that things aren't going to work out where many of us are egomaniacs with inferiority complex.
0: That's a great line. <laughs> Ego man, because uh, as soon as you said that, I thought. Now I do have those times once in a while when man the the bank account is fat and you know the downloads are there and the testimonies are good and I feel good and I'm just going to kind of revel in that. That's the rarity. Most of the times it is the imposter and the disadvantage, but I do appreciate the swings. I guess once in a while I haven't had anyone say it as you just did. <laughs> Yeah,
1: I get it. And do you ever, and, and how long do you find that lasts when you have all the data you need, right? Like bank account looks good. Downloads look good. How long can you revel in that?
0: Oh man, probably a day if I'm lucky.
1: <laughs> sure. exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. Something's gonna, something's gonna derail. And, and, and yeah, you have me thinking about, you know, you could say, yeah, it keeps me humble. It probably just makes me work hard. Uh, and not get too comfortable, which is probably good. Cause I mean, we all know the person who does have the ego. They do think they're the stuff and none of us like that person.
1: And maybe, you know, I don't mean to project, but if, if you're like me, it's like when, when work is going perfectly, there's something going on with my son or my wife. Like not everything can be, you know, firing on all cylinders at all times. So if, yeah. if my professional work's going great, then there's something in my personal life that's giving me, you know, some, some challenge. And vice
0: versa. No, that's true. And and I would think almost, you know, with seasons, of if you're investing a lot in one area of your life and you get that area of success, you've often neglected a little bit some other area of your life that now needs your attention. I find myself doing cycles like that, like dig in and write the book, dig in and produce a lot, dig in and start a new business, whatever. And then I've let something else go. And now it's OK, get back on the exercise regime, get back on the diet. Uh, have you talked to your kids or your wife lately? And that maybe that comes with the territory.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably a part of it.
0: I mean, you're a big premise of the book Josh and what initially intrigued me was you start off with this, you mention it, you know, multiple times in the book that you are an amalgamation of trauma. Obviously your book you go through a lot of of the trauma, but that statement alone that you are an amalgamation of trauma. It doesn't mean you are your trauma. Uh, That word amalgamation is, is even interesting. It doesn't mean you are your trauma that it rules you, but you are some mix of soup of the result of your trauma. And it's either, you know, crap soup or fine bisque, I guess, but it's still a big statement that I don't think that we take into credit in our lives of yeah, we are the sum of, of uh, to to a degree of what's happened to us and then how we perceive that. And of course, you have a lot of stories. And I mean, again, I, I do feel like some of it, you, you write the book, it's so funny and you kind of go over these things, but I'm looking at it and go, man, that that moment, and that's why I said it was gritty. That moment, that sucked. That that was horrific. And that could have done a lot of people under for good.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. It'll, it'll be revealed to me years later about like how I approached this book, uh, if it was correct. Or maybe correct's the wrong word. It was correct because I've had a handful of people reach out to me and, and have looked into recovery because of reading the book or just felt seen. And if, if five people feel that from re- me writing the book, it was worth it. And the massive advance. I'm kidding. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <Of> course. <laughs> um, but you know, I... I, you know, chose a title like Happy People Are Annoying because, you know, the people who make the books thought that was a good title. And I sort of found the book grew into the title and I put, you know, the cover of my, you know, very punchable face on the cover because I was like, well, that's how people know me. You know, it's a little bit of this like corny dude that people grew up with. And then. You know, and then I go in and at my first line is you're an amalgamation of trauma because I knew that I needed to write a book for people like me. And it was something I just thought about, especially in starting to write this book, about like genetic inheritance. And mm-hmm. it it doesn't it's not an excuse, it's not a blaming thing, but it doesn't hurt to just be aware of like what you were born into, what you had no say in the matter of. Yeah. And like it's easy to because for the last 3 or 4 generations for many of us we haven't you know had to worry about our next meal or freezing to death um but that wasn't that long ago and so there were plenty of people in your ancestral tree that were living really challenging unfair lives like up until maybe at best 3 generations ago unless you were born into royalty yeah and you know, and I even look at like I have an older parent. My mom is seventy-seven. So my grandmother, you know, was born in like the twenties and or in the teens, I guess. And uh and she was a, a young Jewish girl living on the lower east side of New York, like walking around without shoes, like an orphan, you know, and then she had my mom and did as best she could, but obviously was dealing with her own trauma. My mom did even better, and then she had me, and I'm trying to do better for my son. But there's just, you know, we inherit a lot of this transgenerational stuff, and we have no say in the matter. And so I just don't think it's any surprise why there's so much work to be done once, you know, you become aware of of sort of what your lot in life is. Yeah.
0: Well, and it's your awareness or, or how you dealt with it in the time, which is why you're on here. It's interesting. You talk about questioning somewhat how you wrote the book and, and whatnot. And I do appreciate, I mean, we do judge a book by its cover. So I'm playing that game right now as well. And, and that's, that, that's relevant, but it's not the first rags to riches kind of story or memoir, which are in some ways, not always my favorite. It was, but it was the insight and it felt very uh, approachable, your story. And just again, how you had those insights like that, like just what I talked about that you were on the bench as a, how, how old were you at that point? 12 or something like that at that series? Yeah. Uh, 12, 13. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. You're on the, so here you get this big break and they snub you. And yet you had the thought of mind that I am going to sit here and learn. I mean, that right there, that, that's a gigantic lesson. How often have I'll say we, everybody listening, but me, have I been in a challenge and said, okay, instead of just being pissed, um, bitter and trying to just get through it, do I say, no, what can I learn? It sounds really pithy and elementary, but it's very inhuman. That's very counterintuitive to sit in a challenge and go, okay, what can I learn? How can I make a benefit? And you did that at 12 and it, paid off too. I mean, that's the other thing. It wasn't just a, you know, wise, altruistic kind of thought it it paid off. Uh, here you are. I mean, that, that that's a massive lesson.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I, I, uh, I, I think to your point, it's the silver lining of, or where defects can be assets and vice versa. And because I felt at a disadvantage, because I grew up really overweight and I felt like people made a knee jerk reaction when you walked into a room, that you were slovenly, that you lacked willpower, that people would like immediately decide that you were of less social value. Yeah. And so because I'd been so used to walking in a room and saying, listen, I don't want to be spectacular, but I would, I would prefer to be on the same playing field as everyone else. Yeah. Um, that going into that situation... Uh, on the Amanda show and being around these people who you know I'm watching Amanda at this time and she's like Amanda Bynes for anyone who doesn't know who who was like she was like a young Carol Burnett like brilliantly funny and 6 months older than me so I, it wasn't as though I was being relegated to sort of like the backup spot but but watching a team of chumps like I was like oh no these people certainly deserve to be the starting five and and if I'll ever deserve to be too it would behoove me to study them and maybe even steal a bit from them.
0: Well, it speaks to me then too of, of humility, but we look at that. I like the term, the definition of humility is not thinking less of yourself, but just thinking about yourself less. It's not a minimizing (laughs) of self, but you did that. That took a, that took a humility for you to be there and to recognize that they had More experience, if not more chops than you did, you're grateful to be there and again, to learn, but it puts us, we're back to ego again. We're back to, to not letting the ego drive. And man, Josh, that's, that's one of my bigger regrets in life. I was a pro cyclist who was very uncoachable. I'm, I'm really blown away. And I I shouldn't even say that. I know that that's part of my nature and if call it arrogance, call it, I fall on myself, my own self-sufficiency, only trust me kind of thing. And, and there's a lot to unpack there, but man, I look back and I was so uncoachable. It was such a waste. I was an incredibly mediocre pro cyclist. Uh, you know, great that I made the pro ranks. That's what you get credit for. But I was so mediocre and so chaotic because of my lack of Humility, and I went on the other side of you no. Know, act like you act like you do have it all together, and you you seem to have balanced That well, I was going to say, balance it well. You had big ups and big downs in trying to balance that.
1: Certainly, I, I love what the Navy SEAL um, Jocko Willink, who's super famous now, and yeah. and you know, written a bunch of books, and he always says like the guys in buds or or, or in Navy SEAL training that were the most sort of, I don't want to say dangerous, but always, you know, would seem to fail were the untrainable ones. Mm. And, and he's like, and many times they were physically gifted. He's like more so than some of the other guys, but it didn't matter because if they, if they couldn't hear for me where they needed to be better, it just, we were at a stalemate it would never ever work they would and and inevitably they would be the most dangerous in a combat scenario he said because they would lose respect for the enemy wow. wow and yeah i thought that was an interesting uh, take on it so to your point oh as a pro cyclist you guys are peeing on the bike a lot huh you are peeing <laughs> yourselves
0: it was <laughs> terrible <laughs> it was te- <laughs> oh it was I have a bashful bladder, man. So you put a pro... It's a bad combo. I'll never forget. I think it was 2002, the US Pro Cycling Championships in Philadelphia. And I had to pee so bad. And we've got like a few... It's a 150 mile race, few laps left. I literally attacked. Went off the front. And I'm not, you know, one of the big pros. But I, I, I went thank goodness they let me go. And it was only so I could get to the top of the hill, stop, run behind a tree, pee, and then get back in before the pack is gone. Because I had such a hard time. If, if you're good, and I did it sometimes, you can do it while you're riding and not even mess yourself. Uh, it's very difficult. And if you have a bashful bladder, it's just a death nail. Yeah. Thank you for that. Oh,
1: that's awesome. I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm fascinated. I mean, it's <laughs> unbelievable how hard it is to be a, a uh, a pro athlete anything but you you know we hear stories about you know um some of these you know super long battles and the tour de france and i mean it's unbelievable what you guys go through and and you have to be so lean so light
0: yeah that was it was it was it was fun honestly you know it was it was fun all in all but it's nuts the guys in the tour man they're nicer than a lot of the races i went to they would They would decide as a group, hey, we're all stopping to pee. And uh, that was beautiful. That was one of my favorite moments in the tour because I just felt relief watching it. I wasn't ever in the tour, by the way. (laughs) But uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, it was significant. You know, you you talked about the perception of being fat. Big part of your story, you were up to almost 300 pounds at what age? Or again, are we around 12 or something? 14, yeah. 14. That's nuts. How tall are you? Six feet. Six
1: but feet. I,
0: then, I, but I was fourteen, so I was probably like five six. You know, man, that's 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 nuts. Okay, so that perspective, slovenly, lacking willpower. I read in the book about you talking about your journey of. So then you lose the weight later on, and now you are. And I look at you today, and you and I look about the same. I'm I'm same same height as well, and uh, realizing that you. I don't know if you use this word, but you loathed that guy. You were, mm-hmm. uh, you were mad at that guy from, I, I guess that, how could you let yourself do that? How could you, uh, how could you do those things? And it was important to you. And I don't know if you spoke to why, so I'm going to ask you, it was important you, to you to come to peace with that guy back there to, to love that person back there. And it's interesting to me because in this arena of personal growth and whatnot, I see that a lot where people despise and even speak to that. I hate that person I was back then. I love the person I am
1: today. What are your thoughts? I mean, hate can be a great motivator. Um, I think we're, we probably have seen some of our greatest athletes are the products of admonishing crappy dads. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think it can. I think it can be. Um, but look, a, a lot of so much of what we do, the driving force of it. it, it I always love this idea of like I care about your actions, not your intentions, yeah. right? So if you start the greatest tech company in the world because of a bad date like Mark Zuckerberg, because you got rejected by, you know, a girl at a date, which is uh, the first scene in the social network, and you never want to feel that way again. Well, you know, I mean, the the your intentions maybe weren't the cleanest in that moment, but look at the result, you know? So I think for millennia, guys have done cool stuff to get girls to like them. Mm-hmm. And I think there was certainly, like, me wanting to lose weight was to prove that I was – again, it goes back to genetic inheritance. Like I came from a family of big people. I did not want to be defined as that. Yeah. Um, and it was specific to me because there are plenty of people who are bigger, or don't fit under like the traditional standards of beauty, who are completely uncumbered by it, and live like beautiful, full lives and are in relationships and, and are with attractive people if, if that's who they want to be. And they're like not uh, affected by it. I, Happened to be very affected by it, and I, I just desperately wanted to live a life. um I don't know. I just always wanted to be average, and because I felt so unique at a young age, I was the kid of a single mom. I didn't know my dad. I was fat. We were, you know, a musical theater family. Like, so I didn't have any of that. Um, we were, you know, financially insecure. So I didn't have any of those anchors that made me feel like, you know, a normal kid. I always, so I was always going for average and average meant being of a normal weight. Um, and I think that's really what drove me in the beginning.
0: Well, and like you said in the book, uh, some of the, maybe a motivating factor, some of the peers who were okay with their weight, I guess, are now dead. Uh, like, you know, Chris Farley and whatnot, which is you, you wrote that. And I had just, I, when I was reading the book, I had just sent a friend. I was at a, I was at a bike race. I still, I still do some uh, mountain bike races. I was at one a couple weeks ago. And they had this big setup. And so to secure our spots, a buddy of mine, we parked our trucks and, and camped uh, for the night. So we'd have our big setup the next night. So I threw a mattress in the back of my van. And so then a guy's asking me a guy who's, who's with us. He's asking me what I do. And we're talking about personal development and whatever. And of course I'm thinking I am Chris Farley. I'm a motivational speaker living in a van down by the river. Uh, so I was, I was living it out, uh, which by the way, here's a gift to you and everybody who's listening, type in Van Gogh, everybody knows Van Gogh, V-A-N-G-O-G-H, Van Gogh down by the river. And this artist did this representation of Chris Farley doing his Saturday Night Live speech, Van Gogh down by the river. It's beautiful. It's the, I need, I need that. I need to get that, get that picture up on my wall uh, as well. It's beautiful.
1: Oh my God. I'm going to check. That sounds great. It is. What did you- What's that? What a genius Farley was, man. Oh Just gosh. the best. Best. Uh,
0: yeah, he, he was. But, uh, you know, comfortable in that, you know, you weren't. And it's, it's interesting that you looked at that and you talked about, this is meaningful to me. Um, Josh, you said fat was a permanent chapter in your story one that you couldn't rewrite out. Okay, that's a big one to me because again, in this industry that we're in, I think we have, again, that perspective of we're just going to overcome and eradicate our past, our genetics, our upbringing or whatever. And I'm looking and go, I I can't ever forget that. And I did not have a a hard upbringing, but we can't forget the, I can't forget those things. Those are grooved in there. I like the idea. I had the idea of a CD Uh, those of us old enough to remember CDs, you know, you'd burn something in that's there. You can't get rid of it, but now you can, you can put new stuff on. So that, you know, what you said in essence is that you can't, that chapter exists, but now Mm -hmm. you have an infinite, I'm paraphrasing, infinite ability to write new chapters that, again, don't eradicate that one back there, but would you say redeem?
1: Yeah, I would. I, I think so. I, I think there's a redemptive nature to it. And I think, you know, we can't betray our origin story because it has everything to do with how we get to where we get. Yeah. And um, yeah, I had to love that kid and realize that it was wasn't his fault like that it wasn't for lack of willpower I, I would look at myself in my 20s and going to CrossFit and losing all this weight and such like a regimented person and sober and in shape and i would think like who was that kid and but that kid was playing with a 13 year old you know with the best hands of that 13 year old had. Yeah. you know he wasn't emotionally equipped yet he wasn't he didn't have the tools. it wasn't like it was clear, like, here's the path. And I turned my back on it. I was surviving and the best way that I knew how. And so it, it allowed me to have a lot of um, love for that kid and to not, to not be mad at him anymore. And he was stronger than I have to be now. Like yeah. I don't have to be the strong in the way he was.
0: Do you really feel, I I, I find myself curious with this. Do you, do you look back and it really feels like a completely different individual or do you still resonate some with that person or does it feel like kind of like an alien
1: person? I'm one of those people who I find like myself last year. I don't know that guy. Like I just, it's constant reinvention. Um, And I'm always me, but I just constantly feel, especially with like my work it just doesn't allow me, I feel, to get to... I've just never really like been in a groove, if that makes sense. But I just have some very like fundamental truths I know are important. Like, I have to put my sobriety first. Everything has to come next. It's the idea of, like, if the oxygen masks on the plane drop down, put yours on first. So yeah. that allows me to be of service to my wife, to my kid, and they are, you know, as close, you know, it's funny to say there's, clo- you know, as close to the number two in, in importance in my life as it gets. And I know that to be true, too. You know, like, I've. it's also been revealed to me of, like, I love acting. It's a fun thing that I've done throughout a lot of my life. And it still, like, gets my goat. Like, it, it's still this mystery that I, I'm dying to solve. And it's cool to me, knowing that I'll never... The net, the perfect, you know, the perfect game will never be played, but maybe I can just get really good at it. And yet I know that if anything stands in the way of me being in service to like my wife and kid, like I really like hanging out with them. Yeah. And so I'm at 35, I am facing the realities of that a little bit of like, did I want this thing as much as I thought I did? Uh, Or the version of it I thought I wanted. And would I be okay with just like making enough money to be able to hang out with my wife and my kid a lot?
0: You you saying that, you don't know or, re- or relate to the guy you were a year ago. Here, here's what's interesting to me on that, Josh, because I feel that way as well. And it was Ben Hardy. So Ben Hardy is an author. I've had him on the show a couple of times and he's got, I think it's in his new book. That's either coming out. I don't know if it's come out yet. It's called uh, be your future self now, but he was talking. So he, he and I were just talking he says, okay, just like what you said, I mean, do you look at yourself a year ago and think, man, have you, have you changed quite a bit? From the guy you were a year ago, how about a guy you were five years ago or ten years ago? So, I mean, I've got your book here. You've you've changed dramatically, and yet we always feel like wherever we are now, we're kind of who we are, right? Now I'm 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 Josh, I'm Kevin, and yet realizing that man, in a year from now, we're going to look back to the person I am right now and think, oh my gosh, I can't believe how blind that guy was, or that he missed that, or he wasn't that one. I don't even know if I've made peace with that perspective there. It just kind of blows me away to think about that, that the person I am now, I'm going to look really, really soon in the future and realize what I was, but not to make it all negative, but I'm going to mm-hmm. feel like, man, I've grown that much. That really puts into perspective today, like as to what you're relating to.
1: totally, and I, I feel like there are, my buddy who's a great actor named Brian Garrity, we talk about different roles that we play, and he would say, you know, some roles are destinations, and some roles are ones in which to help you get there, so like, when I did the, Drake and Josh was a destination role, right, obviously, like it triggered the zeitgeist, so I'll probably, you know, it'll probably be the thing I'm most remembered for And then I do, you know, I did these other things and then I, you know, over the next 10 years and then I do the wackness, right, which was this movie that won Sundance with Ben Kingsley. We talked about it and that was another destination role. And between that and like the next five years were a bunch of roles that I learned a lot from that helped me pay my bills that I met some wonderful people on. But, you know, they were helping me to the next thing. And then the next thing was I did this show Grandfathered with John Stamos. And that was like, wow, I I got a network TV show. Like I'm back on TV and John and I came into each other's lives at a very important time. And like, and that was a destination wall. And then I spent the next five years, you know, working a bit, but really out of work, going through so much emotional challenge, facing a lot of my demons and the realities of who I thought I was. And then only to book this show Turner and Hooch that I was on on Disney plus that was such a, Again, like I was the star and I was an action star, which I would, I'd never thought I could grow into. So, you know, it's like, I think it helps to be aware of like, am I in a? and I think you can know, like, am I in a destination role or am I like in, you know, sort of in the, on that journey to get to that next thing?
0: Well, it's interesting a minute ago, you said that you don't often, if ever feel like you have gotten into a groove. And I resonate with that, Josh. And and my first thought was maybe it's because certain people aren't really looking for a groove. Um, You know, I mean, in, in big ways, I mean, my family changes, my work changes. I mean, the groove of my... Athleticism has been there since I was a kid. That's just that's my play. I, I love it, and that's a groove. So I'm sure I, you know, we're we're playing around. There are some things that are grooved into my life. We'll talk in a minute in our next show about you know your values and habits and whatnot. But there are some grooves. But as far as who I am, what I'm doing, um, man, continual continual points that are consistent through that, but it's it seems like it's come to fruition in a different way. Maybe like you, you know, you're know, you going to be an actor, but you're going to do it in this show. You're going to do it in a movie, in a series, in a short, and you're going to do it playing this type of a character. I did watch uh, The Wackness because to me it stood out as uh, this is not the... This, it wasn't even the comedy here. I'm holding up the book for those of you watching videos or not watching. Um, it, and I wanted to see you in that frame. And that was a different groove, even though... You're still acting, but a very different groove. So maybe that's, I don't know, personality thing, a, I don't know, a a good thing, a bad thing. I don't know, but it just seems to be, it is for some people like us.
1: I think it all depends. And I think once you get to a certain place, if you really attain things, it's easy, you know, I'm still in a position where I'm sort of juking and jiving, figuring out like what the next thing is. And, is it something someone wrote and I've been into that part? Is it something that I work on? That's an original thing. Is it, uh, you know, is it my podcast? Is it writing this book? I'm, um, you know, the, it's still a discovery phase. I find that like, the people, and I'll just use acting as an example, like when you're of that 1%, if you're Leonardo DiCaprio, like not taking anything away from him because he's brilliantly talented, like so unfair, you know, so much so it's unfair, but, also, you know, he, he's working with the best. So that helps keep you in a groove, right? Because Mm. you're also being set up to win. If you're Tom Brady, and you're doing all the work, it doesn't hurt that your whole life becomes like, sort of revolves around you being at your best. Like, you know, and I love hearing about his sort of habits of like, what he drinks, what he eats, you know, when he goes to bed, the body work that he gets done on him, like, You know, so once you get to a certain level, it's, you know, it's easy to put certain um, sort of systems in place to keep you there. If you can keep your ego at bay and if you're willing to continue to do the hard work. Yeah.
0: And something else I don't want to pass up here is that you talked about. It was actually one of the latter things that I read was. And again, your story is not just all the early story, but it's just so significant and the weight loss and the whatnot. And I see again, in this industry of, of personal growth, that when you make a significant change, some of the hardest, I don't think we give it enough gravity. Some of the hardest pressure, if not the hardest pressure is just the norm of our own lives and, and the culture and our friends and our family and how, so often, even as they are well-intentioned, it's difficult for them to see you go through a significant change and to paraphrase what you talked about in the book, because it kind of shines a light on them or it puts the mirror in front of them about the change in their own life that they are not, they are or are not making and off not, now you went through this and that's why it was interesting to me in such an acute way, because it was on TV in front of a zillion people. So you're playing this character who is fat. And in that, in, as you were playing that character over, what was it, 18 months? The, the uh, no, the show. No, no, the I, weight I, loss, the weight loss.
1: Oh, sorry. Yes, yes, 18 months about.
0: So here they are watching you and every week, Josh is a little thinner and a little thinner until ultimately, and you didn't just get some, you know, feel a little pressure. You literally got, I don't know if it's fair to say hate mail, but you got significant pushback. So it's taking this issue that I think we all uh, often deal with when we're trying to make positive change in our life. And it's, you know, times a hundred that you got and had to withstand. I just want people to hear that because it's, again, I don't think we take, give it enough gravity and you dealt with it at a huge standpoint. It was possibly, and you were concerned that it was actually going to possibly tank your career even.
1: Well, I just, I knew that if I, How do I describe it? I felt like being the weight I was doing what I was doing, that if that was my only way to be successful, then I was going to just be like a, a hack, like a prop comic. Like, you know, it's just like, it was like, if I, if when I lost weight and some people might say that it happened, but like if when I lost weight, all of a sudden my gravitas or my, my sparkle, whatever's specific to me that's winning my, my, my ability left with a hundred pounds. Well then, you know, what what am I? The bearded lady? Like, am I, you know, am I just like a freak show and and it's all tied into my physical appearance? Um, Because last time I checked, like being an actor is about disappearing and being able to be in different roles and take on different skins. So I just, you know, so oh, I had to be willing to face that reality that I was like, I don't think whatever is specific or winning about me is going to leave when I lose weight. In fact, I think I'll I'll be more equipped and I'll have more superpowers because I won't be so um, insecure and have be so tense. And um, so, yeah, I mean, look, may, I love the, the phrase, maybe you don't like the new me because you're still the same you and wow. you know I, I think people inherently they hate to be forced to speak a new language they hate when the status quo is is disrupted a lot of times people will will choose the same pain uh, in, and instead of trading it for the prospect of something new right like they'll just stay in it they'll be like yeah but i know this pain and i'm used to it and i know how to Withstand it, and it hurts, but not that bad. And if someone says, "Well, there's a possibility that you might be able to completely rid yourself of that," they'd be like, "Ah, you know, I don't want to take a risk. I'm familiar. You know, I'm familiar with this." So it just elicited a lot of feelings in people where they they got upset. It wasn't the majority. The majority of people were lovely, but there was certainly a good handful of people that that were pissed.
0: Yeah. How long? So what age were you? So you you went from you know near. 300 at one point, but then you had the significant over 18 months, a hundred pounds or, or whatnot and got down to, I think you said your goal was 180 pounds. You should yes. your, your goal weight. So what age was that?
1: That was, uh, between 17 and 19,
0: 17 and nineteen. So let's, let's, let's say 19 years old. You're, you're there. You're where you are today at 35 years old ish. Yes. How long you mentioned something to the aspect of, I think you have skin and, and I'm, I put in there that, that idea of being comfortable in your own skin. So you were this very overweight kid and not to say that you were comfortable in your own skin, but it was the comfort of what you knew, the devil, you know, as, as, as you kind of referred to. So you were there and that's how you saw yourself. That was your image. Now you change it at 19 today. You're 35. How long did it take if it did happen? I assume it did that you were then comfortable in your new skin, saw yourself that
1: way it's such a work in progress. It's okay. like, and I don't know if it's just age, like you get a case of the epics, like, you know, where you're just like, I don't know. Time has a nice way of, of of allowing you to stop caring as, as much recently I was doing this movie for my friend, Brian Greenberg called junction. And the scene was like this post, you know, love scene and where we're so, sort of talking and getting dressed and, and I was nervous because I, I still know that I still have relics. I have some, some uh, artifacts of, of my old body on, on me. You know, I'm not perfect. And, but I, you know, and I would usually, you know, those typical like tight white tank tops I, that men wear in movies, you know. I just, you know, I knew I didn't want to be shirtless and I, I didn't think I wanted to wear that either. <laughs> because I was like, eh, it's not exactly flattering. It's white, it's tight. And I put it on, and I just said, "You know what? I don't care." And I actually thought I looked pretty good, but I could certainly see that you could see some skin through it. I saw that, you know, there was certainly like from the wrong angle that I might cringe for a moment, but it didn't like like it. It didn't cripple me, and certainly from you know, up until 30. I mean, I think, look, as uh, this is both can be good and bad. I'm a typical married guy who I'm like, well, the one person who sleeps with me finds me attractive. Yeah. So what am I worried about? Yeah. You know, yeah. but you know, throughout my twenties, surely I, uh, you know, when I was dating and doing all that stuff, it was like very much about how can I, you know, make myself the perfect version of me. So I'm a work in progress for sure. Hey, Josh, what did, it's
0: such a, uh, uh, I don't know, a pithy interview question, but I just, I care to know of, so here you are, you're going along, you're living the life of redemption of your story. Mm -hmm. You're a happy, healthy guy today from, you know, a lot of reasons not to be. So there's the redemption. What Was there any specific catalyst to say, I I want to put it in here? Because again, I really appreciate the conclusion of your book. And it's like, man, if somebody can get one, Insight out of this book that helps them—it's a home run. What was it in you that wanted to bring that forth and make that effort?
1: I want to make sure I understand. So, like, to make that effort to kind of start my life no, with the book.
0: Well, yeah, to, to take this forth and try to impact people with it.
1: You know, in recovery. I learned at 21, you know, I went into my first 12 step meeting at 21 years old and a guy has said it better than I ever could. He said, you took, you didn't tell me what was wrong with me. You told me what was wrong with you. And I identified with that. You were sharing my story. You know, you drank the way I did. You felt the way I did. You hurt people the way I did. And you were in a glum lot. Like it wasn't this, you know, I walked into my first AA meeting shattered and I'm looking at these people who have all the cash and prizes that come with a good life, careers, families, you know, nice cars, but they were whole happy people, but they suffered from a lot of the same mental stuff that I did. So suddenly it was possible. And there would be moments throughout, you know, the community, and I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, you know, knowing that you're, you know, a faith guy, like, you know, they've they they they've done these studies about like atheists and agnostics, and they say, the one thing that's universal, whether you believe in a higher power or not, is the need for community, you know, we're community based, you know, beings and religion, in addition to the faith part of it, can also offer you this beautiful community. So I found In, you know, having this community that I was no longer alone in my feelings and my experience, and that I could say something at three or five or 10 years in sobriety and say, I'm in fear because my wife is pregnant. I'm in fear because I'm financially insecure. I'm worried that, you know, this isn't going to work out or this or this. And people would be free with their stories. Mm -hmm. They would share their experience and say, I was in a similar place Here is how I was able to walk through it with some grace. Here's how I got to the other side and I didn't have to drink over it. So to me, the silver lining of these challenging experiences is the ability in which to be vulnerable and transparent with the next person and say, I know what you're going through. And if I can be of any help, this is what helped me get through that.
0: It's a great insight. And you, referencing my own faith you know what there's the teaser and the kickoff for our next uh our part two coming up here in just a moment is is that fair
1: yeah. Okay. Great.
0: All right, man. I, it's been great. Yeah. I have a couple other things. I'm going to put them in the next part here, but man, I'm just so grateful that you did take the effort to put this book together, to be candid. And I am uh, a grateful beneficiary. I'll be talking about it over the dinner table tonight with my kids and uh, in ensuing shows, we're getting ready to do one on mental health. And um, man, I'm just, I uh, thank you for making the effort to bring this book and offer your message. Thank you. Thank you. Hey friends, that's again, Josh Peck. Do yourself a favor, get his book. Happy people are annoying wherever you get uh, books. We talked in the show about my questions about his insight. I didn't go into his actual story. So go in there. I think it will resonate with you. If you listen to the show, it's going to, um, you can also find him at Instagram at Josh Peck and watch him now on Disney plus Plus in Turner and hooch. Thank you for choosing to tune in to Self-Helpful. If you got value, again, subscribe, leave us a rating or review. And uh, I really hope that I've helped you today. Help yourself.